Good morning. We're going to be reading from the book of Micah today. That's going to be uh, the, one of the Old Testament prophets. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles that should be at the end of your rows, you're going to be in page 731 and page 732. So if you want to check that out, you can. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I set before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with, the, with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread no olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. You can kind of grasp why it takes a little bit of uh, chutzpah to be willing to preach from minor prophets, it seems. There are things in the minor prophets that don't feel very good when you read them. I don't know if you've noticed that. Can I get an amen on that? You know, 
Amen. Yeah. See, it's, it's not easy stuff to read sometimes because there's a lot of negative things in there sometimes. And that's only one of the problems that you get with minor prophets. There's another problem that you come to, and it's a problem that we come to a lot when we read our Bibles. That is, we don't often understand as well as we think we do what it says. I'll give you an example of something, of, some, of how this is working. How many of you like government waste? Raise your hands. Love government waste, okay, we got one, we got one. So I was talking to an economist from the provincial government this morning, uh, and he told me his working definition of what government waste is. It's the government spending money on other people. You understand what that is, right? It's the government choosing to spend on other people. And we don't like that because, well, you know, if the government's spending on other people, they're not spending on me, so that must be waste. We do that with the Bible, too. When we're reading the Word of God, oftentimes we have our own viewpoints as to what it's saying to us because, first of all, we have our own context that we're coming from. But if we're going to be honest... We have our own desires about what it says and about what we want it to be saying to us. In fact, Micah 6.8, which is probably the only part of this text that most of you have heard before, uh, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's a very commonly quoted verse. It was much more quoted actually when I was back when I, when I was younger and part of a, a more justice-oriented church, a kind of a liberal church, because they used this as an example of what it means to be a Christian, they would figure. You know, in order to be a Christian, you do justice, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. That's, that's, and if you do these things, then obviously you're a good, solid believer, and you know God because well, obviously, you know, only Christian people would, only good, solid people would do that. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you believe all that Jesus stuff or you know all the other things in the scriptures. As long as you love justice and mercy, you do justice and you love mercy and you walk humbly with your God, then everything must be fine, right? Because, you know, that's what the, God, the Lord requires of you. That's what the text says. And then I read Micah. And that's not actually what this means. It's not actually what this text is talking about. The text isn't saying to us, you know what, if you do all the right stuff, if you figure out how to be just and how to love mercy and how to love kindness and how to walk humbly with your God, then you'll be fine. You need to do that stuff and then you'll be fine. You don't need to worry about this faith in Jesus stuff or knowing what the gospel is. Just do this stuff, and you'll be fine. And those other people who don't do that stuff, that's horrible. They, they don't understand what's going on. You see, each of those terms that we deal with, the devil is in the details. We say, you, you know, do justice. Well, have you ever tried to define justice? Plato has a very long book called The Republic in which he actually very poorly defines what justice is. 
And don't waste your time. It's, it, anyway. We talk about kindness. And, and kindness is one of those words that we use so often that, we, that it falls out of real meaning. You know, it's kind if you bring me a coffee on a Monday morning. That's kindness. Which is not actually what the text is talking about. It's something a lot more than that. I'll get, get into that later. Humility, we say, is a good thing. And that humility is, it, it, we, we imagine that we understand what humility is. Except in a lot of cases, we think that humility is just thinking less of ourselves instead of thinking of ourselves less, which is what humility really is. And ultimately, the one word that we, dis that we misunderstand the most is God. And so, how are we to do justice when we don't know what justice is? To love kindness when we so clearly limit what kindness is. How are we to do, walk humbly when we couldn't be humble if our lives depended on it? And how are we to walk humbly with our God if we don't know our God? And that's actually the point of the entirety of the book of Micah, but especially the chapter 6 that we're going to be looking at this morning. So I really do hope you have opened your Bibles because we're going to have to look at it fairly closely because, again, I don't want you to trust me on this stuff. I want you to look into the Word of God and see what it says because I think this is really important. You see, God isn't happy with His people, and you can see this. Now, just to get the context, to remind you again of the situation that we're in. Micah is an Old Testament prophet. Now, the Bible isn't written in chronological order. If you look in your Bible, the minor prophets are near the tail end of the Old Testament. But Micah is actually before some of the books like Ezra and Nehemiah, and about the same time as guys like Isaiah, and after Kings and Chronicles. So, it's kind of in this period of time where if you've been going to my Bible study or my uh, Sunday school class in the morning, it's between the split between Israel and Judah. It's about the same time as the Assyrian dispersion and before the Babylonian exile. This is the time period that we're dealing with. And the period of time that we're dealing with is a time when Israel and Judah are, from a secular perspective, seeming to do okay. The northern kingdom has been invaded and taken over and gotten rid of, but the southern kingdom, while they're still scared, seems to be proud enough. They, in fact, we're not really sure when this particular prophecy was made. It may have been just after the people who took over the northern kingdom failed to take the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom would be lasting for another couple of hundred years. And so people can get very arrogant at this when that this kind of thing happens, when they think that God is on their side, when we think that everything is going well. We, we, we can usually get a little bit arrogant, and that's what kind of happened to the people of Judah at this point. And, Mike, and, and Micah reports God saying something that isn't very positive. Hear what the Lord says, and again, uh, I'm saying the Lord, uh, again, uh, it's Yahweh. Hear what Yahweh says. 
Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, the indictment of Yahweh. God is angry, so angry that he wants to bring a case against his own people. And of course, God is the ultimate authority in the universe, so you can't really go to, uh, appeal to something other than God himself. But he does say, look, everybody would recognize this. The mountains will grasp, grasp this. His people are doing something wrong. He needs an intervention with his people because his people have been opposing him. And in many cases, the people don't even see it. They don't even realize that they are actually standing against God. They, some of them will even believe that they are on God's side, that they're doing the right things. And God desires and, and says in 6.3, Oh my people, what have I done to you? Have, how have I wearied you? Answer me. Don't just shift your feet and avoid dealing with the question. Don't just say, oh yeah, that's a very important thing that I'm hearing now. Answer me. Tell me how have I wearied you? How have I stood against you? How have I failed to fulfill you? He continues by pointing out all of the ways that he has provided for his people. And he has provided for his people. In Micah 6.4, it says, as he redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. This is just one point at which Micah refers to the entirety of the Old Testament to explain how he's been taking care of his people. He has provided leadership. He has provided the law. He has provided fellowship with himself. And yet the people of Israel have turned away from him. If you want to look at that, you can look through the entire book of Exodus to find that section to explain what God is referring to there when he says this. More than that, God doesn't only provide, God defends his people. In 6.5, he says, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. If you want, don't know that story and you want to remember it, I'm not going through it right here, but you can check it out in Numbers 22 and 23. An entire story of how God, when, fate, when the people of Israel were facing other kingdoms that were more powerful than them, God still defended them. When they were marshalling other Prophets against the people of Israel, God turned evil prophecies into good ones for the sake of his own people. God defended his people. God provided for his people. God defended his people. Most especially, it's Micah 6.4 again, the first half. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God redeemed them. While Israel was languishing under the people of Egypt, while Israel had nothing to benefit other people around them, while they had absolutely nothing, God took them from in the middle of a superpower and redeemed them to bring them into their own land. God 
defended, God protected, God provided, and God redeemed. By the way, put a pin in that last one. God redeems. Remember that, it's important. I'm going to skip over this middle section here that, you know, we have the context for the verses that we're dealing with. I want to point out the fact that then, well, Micah then points out some problems the people of Israel have been having. Micah 6, 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it's the sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod of him who appointed it. You see, God is ultimately the judge. And God is ultimately a just judge. We who, you know, live in kind of nice situations, who have a lot of money and, you know, have a situation around us where we're defended, I believe the police are going to protect me and I believe that the government is going to help me out if there's a problem. We tend to have this idea that We don't need judges, and judgment is a bad thing. Whereas judgment actually is a good thing. God is here saying he is going to stand against evil. Now, the problem that we face is that the evil he's going to stand against is our own. He's going to justly bring punishment on his people. He accents in verses 10 and 11. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? By the way, rhetorical question, the answer is no. He will not forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked. And and the scant measure that is accursed. Shall, Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? The answer, by the way, again, is no. God will not acquit that. You see, the people of Israel have become unjust. While they were called to love, to do justice, to do justly, they have not done justly. This is an example of their injustice. They have used unjust weights to gain wealth from the people around them. The interesting thing is they're actually believing at this moment that they're still being godly. You you see, this is one of the problems that we as humans have. Again, going back to the definition we have of government waste, you know, whatever the government spends on other people. We imagine that evil is what other people do. Injustice is the bad things that other people do. What we do that's unjust well, it's just a mistake, or that's just, you know, just a minor thing. It's, it's something that you could understand, right? What's really bad is that person who cut in line in front of me at the store. It's not so bad that I didn't pay the full amount that I needed to for that coffee because I knew how to use something to get it cheaper. It's, it's injustice that the government give those other people money that they don't deserve, but it's justice when I cheat on my taxes.
And God is clear, he doesn't truck with injustice. He will stand against it. Even as we minimize evil, God does not. He sees it clearly. So first of all, contrary to what we see in 6.8, you know, do justice, we once strike one, they don't. They're unjust. But second of all, they're cruel. Micah 8.12, your rich men are full of violence, your, inhab- your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. I have to admit, I sometimes, ha- I sometimes struggle with anger myself. It's one of the things that's it's really good that I don't actually, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't deal with people a lot. I stay alone a lot because one of the things is I get angry very easily. I don't tell you that I'm angry very easily because I'm alone a lot so I can hide it. But anger is one of those things that can often turn into, well, one of the seven deadly sins, wrath, which wants to be violent against people who disagree with you, who don't like you, who you think are doing the wrong thing. That's, by the way, not loving kindness. That's actually opposing kindness. That's cruelty. And I mean, I just have the feelings. There are people who go ahead and work them out. Do you know we actually have uh, increasing amounts of violent uh, uh, attacks happening in cities in Canada? Cruelty is actually something that we are given to. We find it easy to be cruel, mainly because we don't, we don't know the people around us, and so it's not, easy, it's not hard to just be cruel to them. And the people of Israel are in the same position. They're fine and dandy with the people who are on their side, the people they like, the people who are part of their tribe, but oh my goodness, I hate those other people. I remember uh, some guys at the office watched a video with me a few, year, a few months ago about a, a guy who says, yeah, there's, there, there, there's, no, there's no love in this. And then he says, I wish God would just strike them dead. I, there's no love, there's no forgiveness. I wish God would strike them dead. There's a problem here. We find it easy to be cruel to people who aren't part of our camp and very easy to be kind to people who are. And while we can besnow ourselves with that, while we can come up with all of the ways that we are okay with that, God is God. He sees the truth. He knows what dwells in our hearts and he reacts to that. So that's strike two. The people are unjust and they're cruel. Worse, and this is, they walk arrogantly with their idols instead of humbly with their God. Micah 6.16, for you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab and have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. 
In case you're interested, and again, this would require going back through Kings and Chronicles, Omri and Ahab are two names that you'll see pretty commonly in the Old Testament to refer to unjust kings. Now, the funny part is, both of them actually led the northern kingdom at times of richness and power. They had a lot of power during these times. But Omri and Ahab were both very, very idolatrous kings. You, you may remember Ahab's wife, a lady named Jezebel. You know, by the way, if you call somebody a Jezebel, that's really, really a bad thing. And Micah is saying to these people, possibly people in the southern kingdom, that you are just like the idolatrous leaders of the northern kingdom. You followed your idolatries. <laughs> it's funny, uh, back many years ago when I was actually just a new Christian, people would tell me, well, idolatry is, the, is you know, one of those sins that we don't have anymore because, you know, uh, nobody really, you know, bows down to idols, really. Um, yeah. We do that all the time. Idolatry is rife in our culture, and to be honest, it's something that we do pretty easily. I'm going to say those of us here at church can do it fairly easily as well. We'll talk about how great God is, and then we'll go out into the streets and, and our lives tomorrow morning and live exactly like everybody else does, pretending that God doesn't really matter. We'll trust more in our RRSPs than in the provision of the Lord. Not saying that investing is a bad thing, but trusting in it over, over God is, wor is not a good thing. That's an idolatry. A uh, pastor put it really nicely when he tells us what idolatry is. It's when you take a good thing and make it a God thing. And we do that all the time too. And the people of Israel did it all the time. And so God reacted as he, needed, as he needs to react because he's a good God. So often people throw at Christians the idea that the existence of evil shows that there's no good God. The existence of evil merely tells us that we have a patient God. Because to be, you want to be honest about what happens if God opposes evil? Nobody here survives. I, I, I apologize for that, but some of us are better people than others. Most of you are probably more moral people than me. But if God brings his standard to bear on us, none of us survive. And make no mistake, God is not going to simply paper over the, world, the history of the world as if none of this evil mattered. It does matter. He says in Micah 6, 13 to 16, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword, where you shall sow and not reap. You shall tread olives, you shall not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. 
for you have kept the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab and walked in their counsels so that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is a harsh people punishment and needless to say, one that people would like to avoid. And in the text, some people feel the need to be reconciled to God. Go skip back to verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow before my God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? By the way, put a pin there too. Another important text. You see, as God says this, through, through, as the people react this to God, God doesn't answer the question, at least not directly. This is where we see the text, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But that's, that's what we actually have to do as believers anyway. That's what the bare basic of being a good godly person is. This isn't me paying for the sins of the past. That's just me actually not sinning anymore if I do that. But how does God respond? You see, immediately after he says that this is what he requires of them, he says, you don't do any of these. You don't do justice. You're unjust. You don't love kindness. You're cruel. You don't walk humbly with your God. You walk arrogantly with your idols. So then how is any to be reconciled to God. I've said that God is a redeemer. God redeems. You remember me saying that. I told you to put a pin in it. Keep that in your head. God redeems. There are two important points on that statement. Who redeems is God, and he redeems. God, while we were yet sinners, while we are incapable of meeting the standards that God would have for us, even if we gave baths of oil and tons of sacrifices, God gave the sacrifice we most needed. Even if we offered up the firstborn son of our lives to reconcile ourselves to God, it, wouldn't be, it would be inadequate because it would just be our, another one of our sinful sons. And yet, God did precisely that. 
Skip ahead in the Bible to Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 to 13. You'll hear this. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Again, going back to the point, we always tend to believe that other people are sinners and we are not the sinners. The The people outside our camp, they're the sinners. But when he heard it, when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. While we were isolated from God, while we are sinners, God sent his son specifically to save us. Not because we're amazing. Not because we have done all of the things that we need to do. We need saving precisely because we don't do the things we need to do. We find it so easy to read texts like Micah 6, 8 and use them to make ourselves feel better about our own righteousness when in fact we're not righteous and need Jesus. And praise God, he came. While we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, the godly for the ungodly. And while we can't give a firstborn son, Jesus actually is the firstborn son. This is John chapter 3. If you've been reading through John this week, you've read this text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No, the world was already condemned there. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. See, when you read Micah 6, 8, you're not looking at a recipe. You're not looking at the way that you, you know, figure your life out so that you can get it straight. The Christian message, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we could not figure it out. God figured it out for us and sent his son that we might be reconciled to him. And Micah 6, 8 is the result. So brothers and sisters, do we find ourselves today not doing justice? Turn to Christ. He will be our justice. Do we find ourselves not loving kindness? And by the way, the the word there, kindness, it's a very, very large word in the Hebrew. Uh, Those of you who have done any Theological study will recognize the word has said. It's essentially loving kindness, goodness, graciousness, merciness, loyal. It's all of those good things together. It's a lot more than just getting your coffee on Monday morning from a friend. It's what God gives to his people, has said. That's what we as Christians are to love. This is why we sing so many songs in church. 
why we are admonished to be joyful in the Lord. Because he has given us this kind of love. This is what it is to love kindness, to love what God has done for us. And brothers and sisters, looking at this God, how can we not walk humbly with him? And I mean humbly because we are not our own righteousness. God is not looking down from heaven and say, looking at Steve Daw and saying, ooh, impressive. He never does that. Rather, he looks down from heaven and sees me through the eyes of faith in Christ and says, beloved, even though I ain't no great shakes myself, that's why we love mercy. That's why we walk humbly with God. And who's important in that statement is not me, it's God. And this is why I'm so happy that today is actually the first Sunday of the month. 